Hi there, House Culture listener. If you enjoy this episode or have enjoyed listening to other episodes in our series, please support and donate to us through the Acast Supporter feature. All donations will help us create the content that you love listening to. You can decide how much you give and there is no regular commitment. So it could be a one-off and every now and then or once every time you listen. It's really up to you. Click on the supporter link in the episode description and with Google or Apple Pay, it will take you less than 30 seconds to make your contribution. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hi, I'm Nick Slater. Hi, I'm Lanks. Together with Shades of Rhythm and you're listening to the House Culture Podcast. House Culture Hi everyone and welcome to a brand new episode in season two of the House Culture podcast. I'm your host and the managing editor at House Culture, Matt Rouse. Feels great to be talking to you live and direct and providing a taste of much missed clubland for your ears. Stay strong people, we will all dance together again one day soon. I want to thank everybody who has got in touch and given us some incredible feedback on this second season. Please drop us a note if you haven't already. During this season, we have featured chats with Fatboy Slim himself, Norman Cook, icon of Ibiza, Dawn Hindle, big man, tall ball, melon bomber, Scott Gray, legendary promoter and DJ, Dave Jones, one half of cheeky old school rave outfit, alternate Mark Archer, Pikes Hotel resident DJ, Paul Linney, Shoom Svengali and house music originator, Danny Rampling, New Jersey's finest DJ and producer, Harry Romero, plus many more well as some even bigger names to come. And if you haven't done so already, get crate digging through our equally impressive back catalogue from season one. In there you'll find conversations with scenesters such as Danny Clockwork, John Trencher, Greg Wilson and Sally Rogers from A Man Called Adam. Also, if you've only just discovered this podcast and are wondering what house culture is all about, our credo is that we are a collective of house music fans who have come together through our mutual love of the beat to celebrate the spirit of house music. We're on Instagram at housecultureNet, so come and join us on the virtual dance floor there where we can come together to support and nurture this beautiful scene. Let's get moving with this episode, shall we? In this one, we chat to an iconic group who are not only from the old school, but also from my birthplace of Peterborough. Oh yes, it can only be Nick Slater and Lanks from Shades of Rhythm. In the interview, we'll hear how they created some of their iconic tracks and promoted them all by themselves. We started just messing about on the keyboards and samplers, and within literally half an hour, we'd done 
sweet sensation. So we were like, we've got to squeeze this on this album. We literally bunged it in the back of our car. We had a thousand copies. Our mate did the artwork. Um, and we went to the record shops that we were shopping at. Took a box of 30 in. You know, the relief when he said, yeah, yeah, I like that, I'll, I'll take 30. How scary it was for them when they decided to become full-time musicians. So we spoke to Nick's mum and dad in the kitchen. We started we're thinking about giving up our work, you know, we're sort of getting offered money to like do gigs and this sort of stuff. And then what your mum said to me like, oh, you don't want to do that. Like, you know, you want to get a proper job and you want to make sure you've got constant money coming in. He was like, okay, looked at Nick's dad. He was like, you'll go for it. <laughs> and their experiences across the rave scene in general. And then you'd hear, oh, there's a rave in Cambridge. Everybody in the cars, everybody go to Cambridge. You don't know what you're doing. I remember once we drove an hour to Cambridge, waited two hours in the car park. First car pulls out, we start following it, all down these country roads. Two hours later, we're back in Peterborough. <laughs> the, the rave's here, so like five hours later, we're back where we started. Now, this interview was recorded during lockdown, outside and at a social distance. So I hope you also enjoy the general Peterborough park life you can hear in the background. So let's take a journey back to the old school and hear from the sweet sensations that are shades of rhythm. culture guys thanks for taking the time out to sit down with me on this beautiful day just turned into it yeah <laughs> you're uh, one of the iconic acts from the old school era and produced numerous tracks that have gone on to become anthems within the scene and um, before we chat about that we always like to start at the very beginning and can you tell us about your experiences with music kind of growing up and how you discovered your love for music and repetitive beats yeah yeah, so me and Lanks went to school together in a little town called Wilsey. <laughs> and uh, we, um, we ended up in a band together. Um, I was drumming, Lanks was playing keys, and we were just doing cover versions of all kinds of um, tunes that we probably <coughs> shouldn't even mention now. <laughs> um, it wasn't our band, so we were kind of we were kind of like the musicians in a band, really. So we didn't have much control over the material we were playing. Um, and I think the biggest game changer for us was back then. The school every every single Friday uh, used to have a school disco, so we were like 13 years old, and uh, we were every Friday. Obviously, you'd look forward to that at school. It was like the highlight of the week every Friday dinner time you'd go down to the hall and there'd be like a disco um, and and the the guys playing were really into their jazz funk into their soul so who were these guys playing were they students at they the were, school they were fifth years yeah. as it were then in old money um, so it was kind of like an education for us anyway um, so uh, likewise the youth club then we used to go down to the youth club and where they're playing like Dex's Midnight Runners in one room and it's packed out. You'd have the back room with, you know. Lowell and Dave playing soul jazz funk. Lowell and Dave, Rob Jones, yeah, Steve, Steve Walsh. Walsh. Yeah. Not, not the London Steve Walsh, but we had our own, yeah. Um, and they kind of educated us into um, soul music and, um, and then what became electro funk and... So we got into the all-dayers and the weekenders, yeah. didn't we? And soul-funk, and yeah. then, like you say, electro-funk 
and uh, Jack House yeah. uh, was starting to sort of catch on and we was just addicted to that they used to have we used to buy records from there as well didn't we so we used to have US imports I mean because we were the only kids into their music they kind of took us under their wings a little bit because they were like three or four years older than us and um, they'd be like oh we're going record shopping in London on Sunday do you want to come and was like yeah <laughs> so, so we'd all every Sunday we'd go down to second hand record shops and they'd be just like going through and I mean me me, I'd be like I don't know any of this stuff at like 15 years old probably you're looking at the covers yeah, yeah or the yeah. titles of the albums but they were literally like you want that yeah, you want that. Yeah, you want that. Oh, that's amazing. And, um, you know, I'd get home and that's, that's when our learning begun, really, wasn't it? So Yeah, and then later that, that would be the catalyst for creating for music. Yeah, for samples. Yeah, because yeah. they were like big tunes and, and we, were, we were drawing on, on that and mixing it with the hip-hop that we were probably into and they weren't into. Um, so I think that's kind of what led us on to being at the forefront at the beginning of the rave, I think, because we were experimenting. Yeah. We were like... We were nerds. Yeah. We were sort of into the equipment as well. Well, I think you have to be a kind of nerd as well, in a way, like, so just to kind of cherry-pick those samples and to have that background already, it's a, good, a great grounding. You know, it's almost like that rave era chopping up samples. It's almost like a UK version of American hip-hop, just kind of... You know, there was a UK hip hop where they'd be yeah. chopping up samples, but you know, taking yeah, that further yeah. to the next level. If you've already got that grounding in like the jazz funk kind of scene, yeah, we had a lot to draw off, didn't we? So, a lot of the time, you know, when you're not feeling music, musically creative, uh, you're literally like taking a record out of your record collection, putting it on, letting it play through, or skipping through, looking at the, the vinyl to see where the, the light gaps are. Um, and then just sampling all day sampling and then uh, you have to go through all your samples and you have to truncate them and put them in four bar two bar loops whatever and then you know a few weeks later when you feel in the creative process then we'd have that folder of loops fresh loops to to draw on so what equipment were you using for this back then well when we started we were literally because i mean me and lanks were kind of in a band to start with and then with the soul scene especially in Peterborough where we were in the soul scene um, there was kind of break dancing and rap competitions and me and Lanks I, I used to scratch Lanks used to rap and we were in one crew we had a great great crew and, and Ray and our the, singer what was the crew called? I think I, th- I think it was catch crew weren't it but there was a massive massive catch crew so we was probably just I don't know we were, <laughs> we were like 15, 16 just <laughs> With a lino down on the paddling pool <laughs> in the Battle Leisure Centre, but but yeah, we um... I think we started DJing first, didn't we? So yeah. our first purchase would have probably been like a really old belt-driven Deck. double decks yeah. because we progressed then, to the school disco Friday yeah. DJs, you see. So right. and then we'd have to buy amps, and then we'd buy speakers, and then I think eventually we sort of getting in, started getting into buying keyboards and sequences and drum machines. Yeah, but I remember. We used to practice in a television workshop on a Sunday, so every Sunday was rehearsal day. And this was like 1986. Never dreamt of, you know, succeeding. It was just, we enjoyed it. That was it. We'd just turn up and we'd just, I'd literally have all these soul records and hip hop records on turntables and we'd be looping those and uh, 
Langsford have just one keyboard that had like about a one second sample memory on it. Um, and, and the uh, Techniques uh, 12 or 24 band equaliser. Yeah. We used to have, have it running of the output of the mix. We used to get the channels and we used to go. Because <laughs> <laughs> we didn't have any other no. music to generate those kind of sounds. No, one keyboard equaliser, a microphone, and. Uh, uh, and a set of decks. Tracks. Yeah, that was it. Not, not at that point. That was like probably two years later. Yeah, right on set. So, um, so yeah, that's that's literally the equipment we had. And then, because we were working, literally, it was like a case of waiting three months till you got enough money to go across the road at Music Village, and then we'd start buying one bit of equipment at a time. I remember uh, Ray actually won the won the football pools, didn't he? Yeah. at one point and so that got us a Juno Juno 2 keyboard yeah. which was probably our first step into proper equipment yeah. you know so he only won about 400 quid but to us then that was like winning a million yeah <laughs> so in terms of drawing that inspiration not only was it like you said you mentioned the, the weekender events and stuff like that so you'd all you're already kind of going to events and getting inspiration and seeing big djs at the time and acts at the time playing. oh yeah yeah i mean the old days were legendary i mean they were buses basically that went to uh, london birmingham nottingham leicester and you know you'd get on about midday meet at the key theater get on a bus all like-minded people you know everybody's got like a sports bag with them first time I went I was like what's we're not going away are we why's everybody got a sports bag and they're the change of clothing that you know you walk in a club you just put your sports bag down on the on the ground and they were like several sets of clothing that you'd change into throughout the sweating process of the Aldea but I mean those were really the moments that kind of shaped it really I, I I remember, because it was very solely jazz funk, and then one day we went, I think it was Powerhouse. Oh, yeah. In Birmingham. Oh, yeah. And uh, all of a sudden, this, I mean, it frightened me to death, but it was, <laughs> it was sub-bass for the first time that we'd heard. <laughs> the pac you know? yeah, yeah. He was walking through the crowd, and it literally took your breath away. And we was like, we just used to soul funk, like, from the start of it. And then all of a sudden, this sound comes along. People talk about the rave era sort of being creative of new sounds but fidelity wise the first electro records they were using the same studios and the same mixers that they'd been using for years like the 70s and the 80s and the sound was so pristine and well mixed it's almost unbeatable it's kind of been lost really hasn't it that that sound yeah we kind of came back in dubstep but then obviously um very glitchy but those those old tracks you know Hashim, El Nafish, loads of them, Captain Rock. Yeah. Yeah. And they can still work a work a system and a dance floor now, those those tracks. They've yeah. got it all going on. Yeah. yeah. Um, so yeah, from then we, we kind of got together with Rayan who was in another rap rap crew and uh, said, Do you want to form a band? Uh, and there was four of us back then. So there was Wildcat as well, who now um, lives on a little island uh, in the Caribbean. Oh, nice. Got a little studio there. Barbados. Yeah. Records John Cleese's voiceovers every now and then. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, but yeah, there was four of us then. Uh, he was really into his acid house. So he was kind of, he was like 
he was the godfather of Acid House in Peebra. You know. Yeah, he was. Yeah. So he was bringing that sound into you guys, or were you already kind of aware of that? We was all into it. We was it. already yeah. jacking, yeah, we were jacking. Because we used to put on parties as well, um, and illegal radio stations for a while. And, and it was that time when, um, you know, you'd have a soul club sold out on a Sunday night in Peebra, you know, rammed to the... Rammed, completely rammed and then up the road you'd have another club and they just started playing house music and that was completely empty you know but we were the ones who kind of moved across the road from the soul club and started jacking in the empty house club until it eventually got bigger and bigger yeah. and then they swapped over you know so so we, we were just looking anything technology based we were, we were interested in yeah, I think um, at the very start of it, when we wrote the tracks for our first album, we would have had uh, Roland Juno 2, Rayanad, yeah. and then I had a 909, and we had a 106, Juno 106, yeah. and a, maybe a S10 sampler. Yeah, Roland S10 sampler. Yeah, and yeah. I had a sampler, yeah. S330 sampler, and that was it. All of the classic bits of kit. Yeah, so, yeah. you know, every, every song's probably be made up of four or five elements can't it so yeah so we were away had our samples yeah eight I mean, seconds of memory basically we just decided we wanted to record a record so we looked in the yellow pages to the closest studio to us um and it was in Biggleswade, probably about 45 minutes away from us um so we booked it up for two days saturday and sunday um went down there and the guy who owned the studio turned out to be a guy called Steve Vincent who uh, was in a jazz funk band called Touchdown yeah. um, and Touchdown was a massive record for us you know we used to go out and party to that all day as and so once we found that out we was like well you know <laughs> this guy's serious you know um, so we ended up recording three tracks uh, at his studio and then by the end of the Sunday night he said I've just started a label, do you want to sign this to it? Do you want to put it out? Um, so, we so he, was, he, he recognised how good it was and the way the, the sound was moving from the jazz funk stuff towards this more... This was about 1987, so there was, there was house stuff about, uh, but it was kind of American house-based stuff. Um, then you had kind of the more poppy, cold-cutty charty stuff that was had an influence from that housey stuff which I mean Colcott now are just amazing the stuff they're doing at the moment but yeah so that was about 1986 87 it must have been 87 and um, it was it was a house track that sampled jazz funk tracks on one side a soul track and then on the A side was a full-on kind of break beaty ravey housey beat that funny enough sampled hashish Hashim. Uh, Hashim. <laughs> <laughs> Got my head somewhere else. <laughs> and um, yeah, so we signed to him, and uh, he said, "Right, we're going to we're going to go do a Scottish tour." We're like, "What? We've never played live before." I oh, know. <laughs> so uh, he said, "Yeah, we're doing uh, seven gigs on the Saturday, <laughs> and eight gigs on the Sunday." Wow. Uh, I think we was only doing like five on the Friday, something like that. So. 
There's a lot of gigs. Yeah, it was ridiculous. Was what like, kind of timings were they? Was that like across the whole day or no, was that like no, just one no, evening? It was just seven until sort of know, one or two in the morning. Yeah, yeah seven till two, yeah. yeah. Literally, he drove us to Scotland. It was like snowing. Like, it was terrible weather. Yeah, he picked us up and we were literally doing one track. So it was like, go in there, play play the track, perform it. Rain was singing. I think I think you had a guitar. I did yeah. <laughs> for the first one. I know, yeah. sorry, I didn't know. <laughs> so I was on the decks, like scratching, and, and we'd literally go in, do it out. Next yeah. one, go in, do it out. So we was doing all these Glas- Glasgow clubs, like Tim Tim Pan Alley and stuff like that. What was the reaction to that kind of stuff at that time? Did not people very get good. it? Not, no. not good at all. No, it's like. <laughs> It was terrible. It was, I was yeah. exploited <laughs> by the, yeah, Rask like, beatbox label. The thing is... If you look at her first album, on the reverse, it's got a ripped page that's got some of Rand's yes, lyrics on yeah. It's so a frequency, he, right, yeah. yeah. Yeah, so he's slagging off beatbox records because they just took the absolute piss. So from that moment on, we just did everything ourselves after that. Yeah. Yeah, it turns out to be Stevie V who did Dirty Cash, <laughs> Steve Vincent. So a couple of years later, he was he was releasing stuff. <laughs> yeah, we think it's together now. Yeah, yeah. we think interesting that uh, we inspired him to get a bit more in touch with his sampling yeah. when we went in his studio. So he didn't have a clue. No, he had an 808, and we was like, what? Yeah, <laughs> he was in the mic booth, like playing on his. <laughs> and then we realised we was playing twenty quid an hour for it. <laughs> <laughs> So on from that, um, you wouldn't class that as kind of your big break then? What would no, you, what it was quite important say? though because um, when we we signed to him thinking, yeah, record deal, let's sign. Uh, Wildcat, the fourth member, Colin, he didn't sign. He didn't want to give any of his music to anybody else. So it was kind of a split really. That's when we split and went to three people. So it's quite early on. Um, we, we've always stayed friends and always see him and still chat and you know he's he's super talented uh, and we worked with him on a, a few projects that he's been doing uh, early on as well um, so um, so that was quite pivotal um, uh, and then we just decided we want to re- we want to do an album on our own we want to release it on our own uh, so we started putting all our tracks together um, and and the way we work, one of us would come up with a demo, we'd play it to other people, and then if they like it, then we'd all jump on board. And in that month we had to to record the album, we started producing all the tracks that we'd chosen for the album. Mo- most of the tracks were recorded in that month, and then literally we finished the last track on a Saturday about dinner time. And it'd been a bit of... Because we, we'd never really mixed anything before, so it it kind of been quite hard for us to mix this album so it was kind of a release after that and um, we literally had all the samples still loaded from tracks like Exorcist and Homicide that we recorded and um, and because the, the, the sort of the pressure was off and, and the release of finishing and that final recording of on that we, we started um, just messing about on the keyboards and samplers and um, within literally half an hour we'd done Sweet Sensation within that half an hour so we were like shit we've got to put this on here we've got we've got to squeeze this on this album and there was already nine tracks on the album at that point so 
you know, you can imagine how quiet it's going to be, <laughs> you know, nine tracks on an album. We, we didn't even think about that at the time. It was just like, let's get, we can get another one on here, you know. Yeah. So, so, yeah, that's how Sweet Sensation came about, which kind of was a track that launched us. Yeah. So it's mad that if we just walked out at that point, none of this probably would have happened or it would have been a lot longer happening. Yeah. Uh, but just it's that mindset of getting in your head in the right place rather than having it like a job to do it totally changed it and we were just like i mean even one of the one of the keyboard riffs is literally rayan don't play keys and one of the keyboard riffs is literally rayan going dun, dun, <laughs> like with his finger on there and it's like, just yeah, sounds good do it again record it it's just and like within half an hour it just all come together um, which I guess a lot of good tracks do they're not they're not a struggle are they I think yeah just having that creativity and um, just messing around and you have those happy accidents don't you yes yeah. um, I think you know if we kind of fast forward to to now in terms of thinking like producing it's almost too many options it's almost like yeah. having that limitation when you guys started out yeah is more create you more creative within that yeah you've got less things to clog your head um, so you really get in depth with each piece of equipment which is great you get an idea you know exactly how to execute it um, but then on the other side you know no internet not even thought of at that point and then you know how do you get rid of a buzzing mains lead <laughs> what's phase you know and all that sort of stuff and compressors we, we didn't know what a compressor was or a limiter and if we did, we still struggled with it, didn't we? Because no, you needed a, a, a limiter and compressor on every channel. You haven't got that kind of money. I remember buying my first limiter, uh, first compressor, and uh, getting it back and going, well, I've got a compressor. This, <laughs> evidently, this is what you need. <laughs> and I remember just switching it on and going... Put it straight across it's the not anything. <laughs> It's not doing anything. Shoulder down, ratio up. <laughs> That's it, you just get it and you just play around with it until you get it to do what you yeah. want it to do. Yeah. Yeah, but you're right, there's no limit. So whereas we had a limit of, well, at one point, you know, four seconds samples was our limit, and then you'd have to stop. That was the cut-off point. Because I think, you know, as artists, you're never really happy with it. There's always something else you can do with it. But that used to give you that, that's it, we've reached our limit here. So that's that's the track. Whereas, like you say now, you've got hard drives full of space and full of libraries, and it's so hard to to say that's it yeah. we'll stop here especially like you say if, you, if you're not you've got to do it when almost you're not completely happy with it either it's like you keep tinkering and it will never get out there if you and you can so easily just lose that one thing that was yeah. special in the first place yeah. yeah so I mean sweet so you mentioned sweet sensations kind of like launched you onto that platform and did that lead to playing at such events like, I mean you've played at like Fantasia, Rain Dance, like all those yeah. early 90s huge I think when we events. released Frequency, you know, we were thinking on our heads then businessmen and we put a mobile number on the back of the album and then once we'd peddled that around Manchester and London, like sort of the following week, we were starting to get phone calls from distributors who wanted to more of the record. Um, but also we got our first gig invite. Yeah. Uh, which was, Astoria. Was it Astoria? Yeah. What about Subterranea? Was that Subterranea after? was slightly after that. Yeah, yeah it was that, it was that introduction to London. Basically, we, yeah. we put out the Frequency album uh, and then we literally bunged it in the back of our car 
we had a thousand copies our mate did the artwork um, and we went to the record shops that we were shopping at because every Saturday we'd be going down to London going down to Nottingham going down to up to Manchester um, and buying records to play out because we were DJing at gigs albeit Thursday nights because you know back then it was commercial in clubs yeah. on Fridays and Saturdays you know so if you was into dance music you'd have to go on a Sunday or a Thursday and you know that's when the, the, the scenes kind of started but so we, we kind of had we kind of knew a few record shops and we took it down there on a Saturday morning drove down uh, took a box of 30 in let them play it which was nerve wracking you know imagine hearing your only, material in the shop that you've been buying yeah, stuff from <laughs> not only them who have got ears to the best music in the whole world every week dropping but also the people in their shops which you know you got Stu Allen Graham Parks you know you got all these DJs who are buying ready, ready for their set that night you know yeah. and you can see them you know it's just it was just so we were timid country boys yeah so yeah. yeah we was just into it and we was just and it was you know the relief when he said yeah yeah I like that I'll, I'll take 30 but it's got to be sale or return so and what kind of cut were you getting from that at the time um, I think it worked out about a quid about a quid a record something like that we were getting really yeah it weren't a lot it was covering our expenses oh well yeah I, I, yeah, I didn't think about the expenses <laughs> yeah <laughs> no we did that was a problem <laughs> we only sold a thousand um, and we thought that was great and we would have sold more but then um, somebody bootlegged it Oh, no. And they probably sold 10,000. Yeah. Just put it on a white label. But we was happy, you know, did it, it well, did its job. It's ultimate flattery, isn't it, if someone's going to bootleg it. I suppose that's shit for you guys in terms of getting yeah. revenue from it, but it's still getting you out there. In but, a way. but the pirate radio stations started playing Exorcist, Homicide and Sweet Sensation, which were the three tracks that kind of, off the album, that people went for. Um, and because they were doing that, then they wanted us to go and perform it. So that was kind of the introduction. And then because we started performing it, it got interests of record labels. So we had we had quite a few major labels ringing us up, which was like, I mean, I was working at BT, climbing telegraph poles at the time, and you was, you was at Red Ring, Hot Point, wherever, and, you know. So all of a sudden we were at that point where it was like, we're going to have to quit work here. And... Uh, so we spoke to Nick's mum and dad in the kitchen. <laughs> like, Nick's mum and dad, me, Nick and Ray, and it's like, we're thinking about giving up our work, you know, we're sort of getting offered money to, like, do gigs and this sort of stuff. And then what your mum said to me, like, oh, you don't want to do that, like, you know, you want to get a proper job and you want to make sure you've got constant <laughs> money coming in. He was like, okay, looked at Nick's dad, he was like, young, go for it. <laughs> so he's like, cheers, dad. <laughs> cheers, dad. You always rely on dad. <laughs> so we went for that one. <laughs> yeah, gave up her jobs. Yeah. yeah. And then didn't have a job moment. again for about 20 years. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's kind of good though, isn't it? Yeah. yeah I mean, good. that's a moment where if you hadn't have done that, you'd probably look back on and be like, actually, we had a real opportunity there. Yeah. We've never really sort of planned to do anything, have we? Like, how did you get into music? We've just been into it and then you have an idea and we just sort of tend to just done it. But I think that's where experience comes into it because I think my dad did have that chance and he did regret it. So he could, he was he was like, he had the uh, knowledge to kind of pass that on. Yeah. You know, uh, and live vicariously through you. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that's it. No risk to him. <laughs> 
deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. But, um, but yeah, then we signed to ZTT, yeah. uh, and then they started... Um, Fucking about with everything. Releasing, <laughs> releasing the singles. So, I mean, 19... 91 because we we did we finished the frequency album in 89 and released it in 1990 and then they started releasing our music we signed to them in 1990 november i think so then first releases came out in january february and we literally released five five singles that year so 91 was busy banging yeah busy so and they were all from frequency as well um no We'd remix three, three of them, oh. and then the other two we wrote that year. Yeah. So, yeah, Sound of Eden. Yeah, I mean, I want to talk about that one specifically. I mean, that's like a timeless classic. Um, it's still, people, it's still a big sing-along track. It's you know, touchstone for everyone of a certain age in this era, yeah. and even people even younger and older. Yeah. Um, it's probably an urban legend, but I haven't. I swear, I've read somewhere that the vocalist. Was it a lady you met in a cafe, a waitress or something? Yeah, yeah, Joe, yeah. Yeah, no way. Yeah, well, we knew Joe anyway. Yeah. Because uh, she was, uh, she was in the in the dance scene anyway. Yeah. So yeah, we needed a vocalist, and she 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 delivered. I think we did we did do another track with her as well, but that didn't come out due to a sample clearance that um, that we couldn't get cleared. Yeah, I did see her on a YouTube site going through. <laughs> slagging us up <laughs> so yeah they didn't I haven't heard from them they didn't get back to me something like that but um, I've, I've never had any beef with Joe. she's a lovely girl no so. I kind of get a viewpoint from, from her perspective maybe it looks like we sort of used her for the song and then just pissed off and well, we are, went yeah. about our business but we didn't really have a lot of use for her sound of her vocals or what we was doing at the time yeah. it wasn't like a singing voice we was looking for at the time but it worked amazingly well at the beginning so that would have been good I mean we were learning all the while as well we had yeah. no business management skills at all you know we were all of a sudden employing dancers and live engineers and, and sound engineers yeah, yeah. and uh, you know 
you got to learn as you go along. So, apologies, Joe. <laughs> apologies, Joe. I mean, what was so? What was the um, kind of inspiration behind that track? Was it just something that? So that was a guy called Ziggy who actually managed the Prodigy first off before Mark Champion, but before then. You know, he used to go to the same school as us. So he was thinking of putting on a rave. This was for Prodigy and Shades. Um, called The Garden of Eden. And he came round and he said, like, is it possible to write a track for that? So I think I put some pianos and strings together and came up with a track called Sound of Eden. Um, but it didn't sound any like anything like the one that everybody knows. Um, so that got released on our first album, uh, was at TT. Um, and then, did we get asked to remix it by ZTT, or we no, just decided we, to? We did a version, like we like we do, got us all together, got in the yeah. studio. Uh, we were just on it, and all of a sudden, yeah, this was, this version of Sound of Eden came out, didn't yeah. it? Ray and I had written some amazing lyrics. Yeah, uh, you put some amazing samples, sort of in between, and. It just, it just, it, it was one of those. Well, what happened was, it was an instrumental, and ZTT said, "This needs to be a vocal version," and we were like, it "Needs to be more catchy." It doesn't. Trust us. This is it. This is this is it. <laughs> it doesn't need touching. They're like, "Nah, trust us. You need to put vocals on this," mm. and we were like, "All oh, right, we'll give it a go," but you know, it was almost like we're going to prove you wrong. Yeah. We're going to prove you wrong, and, and we went in the studio and. After about six hours, we came up with that. Um, I don't think we ever told them that they were right. <laughs> it just became ours. <laughs> and did you realise at that time that you got something quite special, or did you, did you have a feeling? Or Obviously, you're loving it, it when you're doing. Track. You sort of get that feeling. You're like, yeah, this is brilliant. But that's only your feeling. Yeah. To actually, you know, think about other people thinking the same is a completely different thing. Yeah, but yeah, you, we loved it. Yeah, but you've always got that doubt as well, you know, that, that kind of, is it too vocally, you know, is it, is it too housey, is it too breakbeat, you know, and, and sometimes you can overthink things. It's best to just let other people judge that, I think. Yeah. Um, you, know. you know, obviously with the sing-along element of it, have there ever been any, like, special moments playing it live or anything like that that really stand out in your mind? Or? Most weekends, <laughs> Oh, yeah, there's been some spectacular spectacular moments when it's been played uh, but then like you see posts of other people you know weddings and funerals and you know you know people have lost people and it's, it's really meant a lot lot to that person so yeah it's been really good it's good to uh, read the comments every now and again on YouTube there's, there's some quite recent ones on there that are pretty good yeah I think that's what blows us away just how personal people think it is to them you know which is great you know because that's what music does, doesn't it? It captures a moment, I think, for people. We've always been quite emotive in all of our music, haven't we? It's got to get you somehow. Electronic soul. Um, I mean, haven't you had? An, did you have an appearance on Top of the Pops back in '91? I spoke to a few people who have had similar experiences. What, what was what was your Top of the Pops experience like? We got asked to leave the studio because our costumes were too bright. <laughs> <laughs> Diana Ross was getting put off. <laughs> Diana Ross's security said, uh, can you get that ultraviolet threesome out of the uh, studio? I can't sing properly. Yeah, um, it was great, wasn't it? It was just like hilarious sort of fun for us. Just the 
the concept of being asked to go on top of the pops, something that you would watch like religiously for years. So that was amazing. But the reality of it, we were stuck in a dressing room like all day, like about eight of us, something like that, just doing nothing. You know, every now and again we'd go for a walk to the canteen or into the studio to get removed. Try and sneak a peek into Simply Red's dressing room. Oh yeah, there was a stench coming out of there. <laughs> Yeah, don't know what that was. Who were your compatriots on the show that night? Was it Diana? You mentioned Diana Ross and Simply Red. Do you remember anyone else? Uh, Andy Bell was on actually, another Peterborough lad, yeah. And funny enough, Cola Boy, another Peterborough lad, he was on the week before as well. So, so it was a weird time. Yeah, it was a strange time. Diana Ross, KLF. Yeah, the weird thing is, though, it never really transferred, you know. The, the records were massive. We were playing... You know, that weekend we'd probably played to 20,000 people in a field. Uh, and then you come on and try and re- recreate that on a television screen with no keyboards plugged in. Because, you know, that's that's the way they do it. You know, is I found it really uncomfortable. Oh, it's hideous. Yeah, I found it really uncomfortable. And then, you know, but you need, you need to, you need that experience to kind of form you into what you then want to do. I mean, you mentioned Prodigy as well, and like during that era, I suppose there was a whole circuit of like these great dance music acts, obviously like yourselves, Prodigy, Enjoy, K Class, these kinds of guys. Did you feel like you were part of a tribe and a real movement at that time, or did you just want to no. turn up and play <laughs> no. the gig and we, then enjoy we yourselves? Don't know. You didn't didn't even think about that really. Obviously, we we met Liam and Keith, and like obviously Keith Keith is Maxim's from Peterborough anyway, and Leroy. So he was actually stood in a field at somewhere like Energy or somewhere like that, a rave, big rave that was pretty close to us. And uh, I'm standing in the crowd with the prodigy and we're looking at Enjoy, like, performing. And we're thinking, oh, they're great. And then all of a sudden you think, yeah, well, perhaps we should do that now. And it was just like that, but no real sort of I think, I think mental thing going, oh, yeah, we're going to be the biggest band. No, not as in a band, <laughs> but I think, I think where... The, where it really was special was they were in the rave scene we were in the rave scene yeah the whole rave scene thousands of other people were in the rave scene so it wasn't we're in a band it was like we're in this scene Mm. you know and I I think that's people sort of say what was special about it I think it was just that sense of everybody together we're doing something we're 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 sort of kicking back a bit and and, all, and we're all sticking together and doing it together. I think all the acts sort of hit the ground pretty much at the same time, didn't they? And like I was saying at the beginning of the interview about our record collections, you know, Liam was into all his stuff and he had his sampler and then he was sampling his collection and we all kind of hit the, the ground at the same time. And you'd all get it, I suppose. You'd all recognise, like, if Liam used to sample there, you'd probably know what it was and be like, all oh, right, and, you know, that kind of spurs you yeah. on in that way. Yeah. yeah, well, I mean, he did sample Homicide, which, you know, was a huge compliment, you know. And, and, and of course, Keaty, Keaty went... I went to college with Keaty for a short period. I always remember Mr Virtue said, you either take your cap off or you go home. And uh, he just walked out, picked his bag up, walked out. And the next time I saw him, he's, he's on stage at Nebworth. <laughs> <laughs> so, Mr Virtue did him a favour. <laughs> um, 
thinking back to the rave scene that being kind of it was almost anti-establishment like you say like kind of kicking back against the system and being part of this huge tribe and movement um do you think something like that could kind of happen again or do you think the way things are it's very fragmented and it's, it's too niche a lot of things that people are into or because a lot of people now kind of look you know younger people who are into their music dance music will look back on that era and be like i want to relive those days and would they ever come again there was a lot of moments that collided at the same time for that to happen yeah i mean a good diet there's the music there's the drugs samplers just came out all of a sudden you didn't have to be a musician to start making people dance you know but i think the biggest thing is what what people don't realize is it wasn't just a going out on a saturday night it was literally 24 hours a day you lived you lived it you know yeah we spent the first few months like doing gigs didn't we and then sort of came back to peterborough for a few days went round uh, one of our mates and there's just like you know 20 30 people in our living room we're like all right all right all right what are you doing it's like wednesday night we're like yeah not got work nobody's working everybody's like giving it the jobs they're just there just listening to music and I, I think that that was the biggest difference to anything else I've seen I mean you think of any big scene and that's they're living it 20, 24 7 you know yeah. uh, so it's hard you know unemployment was probably high then as well yeah mm-hmm. you know you got Margaret Thatcher's doing a thing you know so it was, it was just timing is essential with these things yeah uh, it's summer love so whenever that will be again yeah no idea so getting back to your point I don't think you can just I'm going to go out Saturday night and it's it's not you're going to have a great time and you know great experience but it is slightly different to living it 24-7 you know that whole scene you know you've got to have the right clothes music record shops you've got the trendsetters in every little town who, who kind of really important the tastemakers and then you've got like I think the most important thing is having a place where people can meet so all like-minded people would then go to Miss Pears in Peterborough. So every town's got their own little place. And so, you know, if, if you were going out, you'd always go there. And then you'd hear, oh, there's a rave in Cambridge. Everybody in the cars, everybody go to Cambridge. You don't know what you're doing. I remember once we drove an hour to Cambridge, waited <laughs> two hours in the car park at Cherry Hinton. First car pulls out, we start following it. All down the country roads. All down these country roads. Two hours later, we're back in Peterborough. <laughs> the, the rave's here. So, like, five hours later, we're back where we started. And we're in Fengate in a warehouse. It didn't matter, though. It was like, that was part of that day. So. And how far afield were you going to these kind of raves and things? And anywhere. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely anywhere. Yeah. We'd get back from raves and then, like, go to Brighton to a free party or something like that. Yeah. In the forest or yeah, or go to Wales because there's something in a in a old abandoned railway tunnel or something like that. You know, brilliant days. Yeah, yeah it did have its dark moments as well. Though a lot of people don't talk about the dark moments, but you know there was a lot of dark moments as there well. There was, yeah. Nothing that good can last. Yeah, and there was I've interviewed Terry Farley for this, and he made it one of the points I always remember that he made was you know everyone always talks about the good times and the good things, and you see the videos and the photos, and everyone looks yeah. like it looks amazing. It was like sometimes you know like you say the party was five hours away and it was back circle back to where you were, and you turn up and everyone's like on a downer, and you know those are the ones that people don't talk about. 
Yeah, it turns into selective memory and then you just remember the good ones. But yeah, there was loads of bad ones where the music was getting, just getting too fast. It was like the middle of winter and it's like really cold and muddy and yeah. I, I remember uh, Amnesia House, Donington Park, and the gig had finished. It was about six in the morning and I'd just started packing my keyboards away and I'd just coiled a cable, about to put it in the flight case and all of a sudden I just felt like I was going to just pass out. I couldn't breathe at all, yeah. I just couldn't breathe. I couldn't get any air in my lungs. Um, and I looked around, I looked at, looked at Lance and uh, he, he looked okay. <laughs> and then, yeah, and then, and then literally seconds later he looked the same as I did. And uh, somebody had let this CS gas off under the stage and there was loads of competition between rival promoters and, you know, whatever else went on back then, you know. So, um, yeah, there was some some weird moments as well <laughs> yeah. Strange. yeah um i mean there over the past five or ten years there's been like this real resurgence of events i mean we mentioned before that mike's on like clockwork orange and clock stock and stuff like that where you know it's almost catering to that market someone like myself who's got a bit more disposable income now and my kids are a bit older and i can go out and party again and you know enjoy all the music as it was and sometimes you see parents there with their kids and stuff like that I mean obviously you've been involved in some of that what have your get, experience has been it's, that it's been getting really good again the club scene for the last sort of three years or so quality of music the crowds that are turning up they're all into it properly invested like you say we're sort of doing gigs now that are for you know average age of 40 and 50 and you know the Ibiza slip mounts Ibiza slip back in time things I've uh, been there three years on the trot. They've been really good. Really great people. Yeah, is you know it bringing I mean? back a lot of faces from... Yeah, the, they've all got the same ethos. Yeah. Um, and obviously they've got kids. Uh, our generation has got kids and we're starting to see them sort of doing music that's influenced by their parents. Yeah, I mean, the Ibiza week is probably the closest you've come to that community feeling that was back then you know because you're in two hotels right next to each other you're all going to the same gigs you're meeting people you know because that's what it's all about it's like people all over the country meeting people for the first time and yeah. swapping stories and you know it's friendly relaxed. yeah just yeah. nobody's nobody's a dick you see like <laughs> the, the the second year we played there it was at Ibiza Rocks yeah. you know it's a good venue but it hasn't really got that homely vibe but the the slip mount thing was brilliant but then I think the week after it was like uh, Radio 1's sort of weekend and it's you know Stormzy and Wiley and, and all that lot there it must be a completely different atmosphere compared to what we're doing but like Nick said it's a different venue now it's really nice yeah I mean Ibiza's just lovely island I know it's just it's got so many of them. some people think it's this one thing but it's nice all these things yeah, I wouldn't go to Ibiza normally, I don't think. We did some great parties in Spain, didn't we? <laughs> when we first started gigging. God, they was mental. Motorbikes through the crowds, fire eaters, all sorts of stuff. Yeah. <laughs> and how different have the scenes been from the different places that you've travelled around playing? Is there anything that really kind of stands um, out as totally crazy? We, we used to have the south-north divide when we, we was gigging, so like, you know, a lot more sort of uh, pianos up north and a, a lot darker down south and more beats. Yeah, it used uh, to be like 4-4 four, four up yeah. north uh, and then kind of breakbeat down south. 
up north the crowd would be like yeah and then down south they'd be like that <laughs> but I think I think that's why Sound of Eden kind of worked as well because we were doing it had a kick in it 4-4 four, four kick but it also had a break beat as well so we could kind of traverse the scenes a little bit because it was literally like Rave was split in half back then yeah. in, the, in the early 90s it was like it was split in half um, and um, nowadays old school is both of those musics yeah. but back then it would be kind of you know you had your down the south would be playing break beats and bass lines and up north would be more housey so yeah it's interesting to make that distinction I mean like you say Sound of Eden's got kind of both a bit of both elements it's got yeah. that break beat and it's got the pianos yeah it's kind of overlooked in the sense that there were different sounds in different parts of the country yeah. I think yeah yeah, yeah. And, and the pianos were really quite a northern thing to start with as well wasn't they we, we found when we was gigging yeah yeah we'd have to do a different set so yeah. a different set but, but now it, everybody's happy it just moved so quickly though you know from from the early raves of 88 89 where it was you know house music it was hip-hop it was even a little bit of indie you'd hear as well in in the raves as well so they were a rave back then was really varied. You'd have Groove Rider and Sasha back to back, not back to back, next to each other, playing sets next to each other, and they'd be playing a similar set. You know, you wouldn't think the music's changed here. You know, so. Yeah, you see those names on a flyer and you think, how can that even be? Yeah. But yeah, it's, it's incredible breadth of real melting pot. Yeah. Yeah. But um, we always do is get. I guess to um, choose five tracks for a Spotify playlist that we do and then um, obviously we've done like you know 20 interviews or whatever so far so it's quite a big list of really random stuff in places but all quality and the themes are you know the catalyst what first got you into dance music house music whatever and we'll kind of go from there so I'm writing down for you if you just want to remember what they are but what we always try and do is just get a bit of a thumbnail sketch about your experience with these tracks and why have they made it onto this list. So I was going to put that. <laughs> I was going to put that and I didn't. And then I was listening to Trevor Mack. Trevor Mack? I always say Trevor Mack. Trevor Nelson. And he played it on his show. When today? Yeah. Well, really? last night. Oh, really? <laughs> it's, yeah, it's quite, so the catalyst, what, was, uh, what would that be? Yeah, Funkmasters. Well, going back to the school disco on a Friday, that's where we first heard it. Friday dinner time so we those fifth like, years have been playing it then yeah the fifth years we're playing it and not only that I think because the chemistry teacher used to give the fifth years you know 20 quid to go out and buy some tunes so back then it used to be like television workshops used to sell records sell vinyl so you'd go in a television shop and out the back they'd have like vinyl and uh, yeah there was a 12 inch of love money and whenever this came on the whole school had a little dance routine for it <laughs> so <laughs> I can still remember it now it's a good job this is a podcast um, but yeah yeah it was it was um, amazing tune jazz funk tune but it was it was just where it was starting to go electronic yeah so yeah have you ever sampled it in any of your stuff or no is that is that too too much I think it's we've, weird, we've sampled atmosphere dancing in outer space and that was kind yeah. of similar vibe it was that jazz right. funk but going into Brandon Block chose that one yeah classic yeah. Yeah. I mean the hi-hats on there just that's what we sampled we sampled just the hi-hats on there yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so let's move on to a floor filler nice yeah um, I mean this crazy. is a hard one because 
every floor is different. Yeah. So you know you've got you've probably got a whole box of floor fillers. Yeah. <laughs> um, a certain tracks will move a crowd though all yeah. the same way. Isn't it? For me, this ticks all the boxes though because DJ Zinc one three eight trick. It's kind of just drums and bass line. That's all it is with a fill. Um, but everybody loves it. You know, it's got the hip hop feel. It's got a rave feel to it. Uh, it's Lovely got swing. Drum and bass feel to it's it. It's almost so, drum and bass. Yeah, it's just, it's just one of my favourite records, and it's one of the simplest records. You know, it's, it's fantastic. Like, yeah, I'm getting, I'm getting a bit of goosebumps just thinking about it. I love that track. It's great to see it um, come through on. Um, and yeah, we got there in the end for a choice for a sunsetter. Thanks. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I mean, there's obviously a lot of sunsetters, but this one takes us back to Ibiza. Uh, we'd done a gig over there, we had like a few days chilling, and we watched the sunset outside Cafe Mambo. And just as it was going down, they put that on. And I'm glad I had my sunglasses on because it just broke me, just seriously broke me. So, yeah, that's that's my sunset. It's the, um, the corgis everybody's got to learn yeah, Everybody's got to learn sometime, yeah. And it's got, I mean. And obviously, you know. Uh, uh, Baby D, yeah. you know, they did a version, yeah. which so it's a bit ravey as well. Yeah, I think that sample in it, um, I was only ever familiar with the sample before oh, I'd even heard that oh, one okay. <laughs> when I was like growing up. So, yeah, yeah discovering where the original came from was totally quite something just, when I was like about 12, you know. Yeah, sun going down our beef totally just made me melt. Yeah, it's gorgeous, gorgeous. Um, and well, yeah, moving on to a tearjerker. Oh, no, I picked Chaos, Chaos Mus, um looped just because it's just my kind of thing and it's I'm a sucker for a, a string and a piano moving in a certain way so yeah that'll put a lump in my throat definitely but millions of them yeah I love sort of emotive stuff I mean if we <laughs> if we uh, don't know we probably didn't work together I'd probably just be putting out look wrist cutters wrist cutting <laughs> tunes like, that'd be my entire collection <laughs> Just all in, in minor keys. I think everybody's, you know, it's, it's about the mood, isn't it, that you're in. And, and yeah. if, if you're in, if you're on a downer, had a bad day, then trying to write an upbeat, happy song is going to be hard, isn't it? So, uh, last tune, that's hard. Again, you know, so many different dance floors. So, uh, but we thought we'd go for a classic uh, on that Joe Smooth, Promised Land. It's just such an uplifting tune to end on. Yeah. You know, it's just probably one of the most mood-enhancing tracks <laughs> you'll ever hear. You know, so it's brilliant watching all all the crowd singing it. Yeah, and it's just you can feel that that uh, I don't know that rush that you used to get when you was back raving, doing things that you shouldn't have done. <laughs> and the lyrics still resonate now, really. Yeah, they do. Yeah, and. I loved the way the sound ping-ponged across the Atlantic as well. Mm-hmm. So you'd have like Detroit, Chicago, and then it'd come over here and there'd be like the acid house would turn into like a British version and then it'd go rave and then it'd go back over to America and then there's this constant ping-pong uh, taking influences from what they'd just added to it, you know. Um, and, and that was really early on. Um, you know, one of the one of the originators yeah, so cool and um, to kind of 
wrap it up, I suppose. We always ask, obviously, we're house culture. You guys have been part of the fabric of it since the beginning. What does the whole scene kind of mean to you and what has it brought to you in your life so far? Obviously very proud to be part of it. We've always wanted to be into music. So I think I think we're surprised as well. We're surprised that you surprised know, the longevity of reaction. Yeah, surprised we're still here. <laughs> Struggling, not gigging, because we've been gigging for literally 30 years. So this is, with the lockdown, this is the first time we've not gigged for three, nearly four months, which is really, really strange. Yeah, have you done you anything know. virtually? Uh, yeah, we've done a couple virtually, but again, so hard being in your room on your own um, I mean we did it with three of us so we were all in our individual rooms <laughs> it was so, really good it took a lot of work didn't it yeah but then actually planning, like yeah. sort of watching it play back on a Saturday night it was for a street rave up in Scotland and uh, it was really good got quite a buzz off it just being involved in it when it was actually played live there have been some good ones it's, it's definitely seen me through it you know yeah watching some good sets do you think it'll be um, there'll be I don't think there will be but do you think there would be like a move towards maybe doing things a bit more virtually or do you think everyone would just be happy to get back out there (laughs) if they can monetise it because you know you're not getting paid anything really if you do it at the moment but yeah if they was saying yeah X amount for for this I mean my, my only concern would be it's a great opportunity for certain politicians to prevent this from going back to clubbing for a long while you know we, we almost played a drive through gig in a couple of weeks but the local council pulled it saying even though people are in this square in their car they could be shouting to other people and that could transmit it I mean there's always going to be a risk it's just we've got we've got to just limit the risk but but without stopping people partying because you're not going to stop people partying that's why people are doing illegal stuff because they can't do it legally you're never going to stop people partying that's probably a great place to wrap up guys thank you very much (laughs) thank you very much (laughs) house culture nice one i hope you all enjoyed that How inspiring was it to hear about the do-it-yourself attitude of that era? All you needed for success was good musical taste, some motivation, a few bits of equipment and a fair bit of fearlessness. I hope the words from Shades of Rhythm can inspire you on whatever you're working on right now. I also want to say a personal thanks to Nick and Lanks for meeting me at social distance over lockdown. The whole thing was organised like some kind of illegal party with locations for meets being shared by Google Maps, pin drops on WhatsApp. Who said those types of parties couldn't happen again, eh? If you want to hear the Shades of Rhythm submissions for our Perfect Playlist, please open up your Spotify player, search for House Culture Perfect Playlist, and there you'll find not only Nick and Lanx's submissions, but choices from every guest we've had on both seasons of the podcast so far. There's all kinds of stuff in there covering every facet of house music culture and more, so give it a shuffle and turn it up loud. Once you're listening to that, please help support this podcast by loving, liking, tweeting, sharing and rating or reviewing us on Apple. Please, it's really important. It does make a difference to so get in touch. We'd love to hear from you. If you say something nice enough, we'll give you a mention on a future episode. This time around, a lucky listener is someone who goes by the name of The Glazer. 
they left us a review on Apple Podcasts saying that they have been listening to these episodes whilst doing the school run in Ibiza. This made them realise why they ended up living there. Amazing stuff. We at House Culture are ecstatic that we can continually inspire you about your chosen home of the White Isle. I hope you stay tuned in for the massive guests we have coming up in the future as well. And if you want to join us as House Culture from wherever you might be in the world, please hit up our Instagram feed at HouseCultureNet or follow the hashtag TrueHouseCulture. Not only will you be fully informed about the podcast, you'll also get connected with other house music lovers from across the world. And finally, if you want to get in touch with me, Matt Rouse, you can do it directly on Instagram at DJ Matt Rouse. Thanks for listening. Stay safe. See you next time. House Culture. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.